You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA. Certainly appreciate being a part of your day, and we're going to cover a lot of ground on today's episode. We're going to talk here in just a moment with Pedro Deneca, founder of MD Commodities. He's been down in Brazil recently. Of course, we saw some headlines emerge from Brasilia, the capital of that country, over this weekend. He'll fill us in on what's happening down there. And in segment two, we're going to talk weather. John Baranek of DTN Weather will be with us before we get into swine diseases with our friend Dr. Paul Sunberg the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center. We'll talk about what's spreading around the world and what risks we need to keep an eye on here in this country. Before we do all of that, however, I figured it's worth checking in on America's largest soybean production competitor. That's the country of Brazil. And those crops are growing out in the field there. They had some unrest this past weekend. Pedro Deneca, founder of MD Commodities, down in Brazil. And Pedro, fill us in this weekend. What happened in Brasilia? Oh, hit the unmute button there, Pedro. Absolutely. Here we go. Pleasure being with all of you, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me again. Look, um, obviously, we, everyone by now, uh, I've seen it on the news and uh, a lot of unrest. And uh, it, it's very difficult to uh, provide a qualified opinion at this point. A lot of theories, a lot of opinions. Uh, but what I can tell you, I'm, in, I'm here in Brazil right now speaking and uh, life as normal, quote unquote, everywhere else in Brazil. But obviously, this is not something to just brush under the carpet. You know, it's a big event. Uh, but the best approach right now, in our opinion, is a wait and see approach. The markets don't seem too spooked about it. The uh, Brazilian real is uh, down a little bit versus the dollar, but not nearly down as much as uh, some of the initial opinions, you know, once the... Uh, um, uh, manifestations and the invasion broke out. So uh, we just have to, again, uh, have a wait and see approach and uh, see where we go from here, really. And Pedro, I think it's interesting. You mentioned that life in the rest of Brazil continues as normal. And as I watch the soybean markets this morning, it certainly appears that the soybean trade isn't terribly concerned about what developed over the weekend. Those soybeans in Brazil, Pedro, has that harvest started quite yet? Uh, it has, Mike, and uh, it is just starting, you know, a lot of some of the early soybeans that were planted uh, to give place to cotton. So a lot of the cotton producers, they plant their soybeans earlier than uh, even the normal window, uh, prioritizing the, the, the cotton culture and the window for planting. But that, that's really the harvest that has begun. Uh, but the, the real harvest gets going in about 10 to 15 days. And uh, really, January 20th to about February 20th this year is going to be a very, very busy time here for uh, the producers and also uh, logistics here in Brazil as the soybeans head to the ports uh, en masse, in my opinion. And as those soybeans head to the port en masse, Pedro, we are going to see a reshaping of the export regime around the world. How should producers up in the U.S. be preparing for those Brazilian beans to come onto the market? You know, Mike, I've been saying this uh, for, for quite a few months, actually years on Twitter uh, at PhD Chicago. And, and, and it's uh, a lot of times I get some blowback. And, and, and all I'm trying to do is explain that the views that even the, uh, currently the USDA has on, on U.S. exports and, and how the export matrix functions, it's, um, it's not quite uh, reflecting the, the, the new reality. You know, the, the U.S. window for exports gets smaller and smaller every single year. Why? Because Brazil, when it does have soybeans available, those soybeans, the vast majority of time, are going to be cheaper than U.S. soybeans. You know, one of the main factors behind that is the currency factor. That if we have a weaker currency than the dollar that makes our soybeans here in Brazil cheaper uh, into the export market. So uh, what's going to happen is, number one, uh, we still believe that U.S. exports are not going to reach the current number that the USDA has, which means U.S. carryout is very likely headed uh, over 300 uh, million bushels, if not over 350 million bushels, because we believe that U.S. exports in the next 10 to 20 weeks, especially, is going to be, it's going to lag severely behind last year's pace. Uh, remember the last year Brazil had a drought, so U.S., uh, performed in that window. But on a normal year of production in Brazil, the U.S. export window 
now is really between October and January, October and mid-January. That's really the main export window for the U.S. for larger volumes. The U.S. is still going to export, but most of the larger volumes are going to come to Brazil from this point forward. Pedro, while we're thinking exports and thinking South America, we've heard a lot about the drought in Argentina this past year and the the hit it's going to put on their soybean yields. And the expectation I've heard from folks is that the Argentinian crushers will then step into Brazil, buy some of their large crop to crush and produce the meal. Mm -hmm. Does the currency exchange rate work right now for the Argentinians to buy Brazilian beans to crush? It does. The, the math works. It, it's not, you know, the situation in Argentina is so volatile, Mike, especially uh, given the currency, right? They have three different currency valuations over there, the official, the unofficial, and then the uh, soybean rate, if you will. So it's 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 very difficult at times, very volatile. But uh, the market finds a way to work itself out. And we already heard last week that we had some crushers sourcing uh, some of the early Brazil soybeans and, and some of the stuff that's uh, uh, stocked in the south because the math has worked. But again, nothing, not major volumes. At the end of the day, the Argentinian production this year, unfortunately, is again going to be uh, well below what the potential was. Uh, we're, we're have, we have a working number right now of about 40 million metric tons. Uh, so far, far, far away from where the USDA currently is. But Mike, again, the main point is Argentina is not a major exporter of soybeans. They are a major exporter of soy meal and soy oil. Uh, but again, we believe the market's going to work itself out. We have plenty to go around the world between the U.S., Brazil, and Argentina. And we believe that even with a 40 millimetric ton crop, uh, the world's going to have plenty of soybeans, soy meal, and soybean oil to source. Well, let's turn the focus to the other major production crop down there in South America. I'm talking about the corn market. Pedro, we've got those Brazilian farmers fired up to plant more soy acreage this year. Does that enthusiasm, is it going to continue into increased uh, corn acres in that second safrina crop? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, current USDA number uh, as estimate for Brazil total corn production is around 126 million metric tons. We believe that number is actually quite accurate for right now we work with a range between 123 and 130 uh and just for comparison's sake uh two years ago the production was total production was 85 million metric tons and last year uh we had a good production of around 115 116 million metric tons so uh, we believe that if weather uh behaves and it allows uh for not only the soybean harvest to take place remembering that uh, the rainy season is kicking in full gear now in Mato Grosso, especially, which is the largest producing state, uh, both of uh, soybeans, uh, summer soybeans, and also um, safrinha, winter corn. So uh, as long as the weather behaves and allows the farmers to harvest and then plant the corn right behind it, and it rains until about mid-April, uh, you know, the rains contribute until then, we believe we're going to have a very, very large crop and consequently very large exports again after last year's record of 44 million metric tons which was more than double the prior years absolutely the incentives are there for those south american crops to continue to grow folks we've been speaking with pedro deneke he's the founder of md commodities you can find him on twitter at phd chicago pedro thank you so much for joining us today pleasure mike safe travels home from brazil and folks stay with us we'll be talking with john baranek about that weather when aoa returns Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. In farming, you know being early means you're right on time. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can protect your investment and give your farm an advantage all season long. Find the tools and resources you need to spray early and guarantee your weed control at RoundupReadyExtend.com slash spray early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved.
Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Now it's the time of the week we check in with our meteorologist friend, John Baranek of DTN Weather. He joins us now. John, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me again, Mike. Always good to talk to you. You know, John, as I took a look at the radar this morning, it appeared if we go east of the Rocky Mountains, like it's fairly quiet across the bulk of the country here. Is that the situation you're taking a look at? It is today, uh, and it's actually quite warm too. I mean, especially you know if we think about where we are in the year, you know, being in kind of around the mid-January time frame. This is the the coldest time of the year uh, historically. This week and next week are so um, we're getting some quite warm temperatures east of the Rockies. Some nice quiet, nice warmth. Uh, you know, as long as you can keep in perspective how cold we should be for this time of year. Well, that's the key, John. So tell us who all is experiencing some above normal temperatures today. Honestly, it's everybody. Uh, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, unless you're like up in the Red River Valley between the Dakotas and Minnesota, temperatures are actually near normal there. Um, they're in the single digits for lows this morning, but that's kind of where they should be for this time of year. But everybody else is kind of uh, 20s and 30s for, for morning lows. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of 40s and 50s across the country here both today and through most of the week. So, John, as we take a look at that forecast, that radar situation, as we sit here today, it looks pretty clear east of the Rockies. That's the key distinction, because when we go west of the Rockies, it is lit up like a Christmas tree. Talk about what's happening here on the West Coast weather-wise this week, or I guess over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, really, we've been in this situation where we, we finally got uh, our 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 systems to, to get into the West. A lot of them have been kind of either just briefly passing through with some showers, but now they're getting pounded out there. Uh, and they really have over the last few weeks, especially. And, you know, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, there's one system right now moving through California. Basically the entire state is lit up in either green or blue, whether it's uh, rain in the valleys or snow in the mountains. And um, that's part of a two part system kind of moving through the West here early this week. Uh, this, this little part of the system, I shouldn't say little cause it's bringing quite a bit of rain. Um, but we'll move up kind of towards the Northern Rockies here today and tonight, and then kind of move along the international border, um, through tomorrow and Wednesday. The second part of that will actually take a, a little bit more of a, a track southward. So it'll go from kind of 
Colorado eastward through the country here, kind of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday timeframe. Uh, and both of those um, should have some precipitation up across the north. Uh, it'll be hard because it's a lot drier up there. Uh, that second storm system though, that goes through the middle of the country should have a lot more access to moisture. It'll be the, the stronger of the two pieces and uh, uh, really bring some good precipitation here through the middle of the country. All right, John, as we think about what's happening out there on the West Coast, what's happening across California, they have been in the grip of drought for seven to 10 years in some geographies over there. How much how much moisture are we actually dealing with across the country? Is this going to be measurable in helping them come out of some of this catastrophic drought? Oh, yes, it is definitely significant. Um, you know, but, you know, precipitation is only one piece to the puzzle in, in your determination of drought. Uh, the U.S. Drought Monitor takes into several things like snowpack and river flows and soil moisture, like deep soil moisture and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but obviously the biggest part of that is precipitation and they've been getting just walloped here. Uh, we saw some vast improvements on last week's drought monitor across most of California and Nevada, uh, other parts of uh, Washington and Utah as well. So um, things have gone uh, quite well for them. Obviously they're getting a lot more rain here today as, as we've mentioned. Um, they've got flood warnings out for the Central Valley of California. Some areas there have seen uh, kind of around uh, eight to 10 inches of rain over the last few weeks. Um, but this is their wet time of year. This is usually when the West Coast gets their heavy precipitation events. So it's not totally unusual. It's just really glad uh, for those people out there that are actually getting it because they've been in drought, like you mentioned, for such a long period of time. They have. And John, is any of this moisture pushing itself enough into the Rockies to provide some relief to the Colorado River Basin as that snow melts later on this year? It certainly looks to be so. So, um, you know, we're, we're, when we're looking at snowpack and what really feeds all those uh, river systems, the Sierras in the California have been the, the big winners uh, thus far. Um, the government of California puts out uh, some snow water equivalents for the mountains and they've almost reached what they normally see for an entire season. Um, after this week goes through, I think a lot of those areas will have already seen that. Further um, inland, I would say, I guess through the Rockies and through some of the, the mountain ranges there in the Great Basin, uh, they're above normal in their snowpack as well. So all these systems are definitely adding to it. Um, and, you know, once we finally get out of this La Nina business and we start getting into more kind of, quote, normal rainfall patterns and snowfall patterns, uh, we should see some of those rivers uh, at least getting back to close to where they should be. You know, we uh, the Colorado was kind of one of the more famous ones uh, of getting some very low um, water levels here over the course of last summer. Uh, I think that the stream flows on those should be up uh, going in through next year. All right. Some some improvement would certainly be appreciated by the growers out in that region. John, all this action happening on the West Coast, of course, weather system that's in this country typically move from west to east. Do any of these things break out across the Rockies later in the week? Do they push farther east? Yep. So that one that uh, that I talked about kind of moving through the middle of the country here, that's going to be kind of widespread uh, precipitation from the track southward but not until it really reaches kind of Missouri to Louisiana. Uh, farther west than that, um, we'll probably get a stripe of, of rain changing to snow across Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, but Oklahoma and Texas doesn't look like they're going to uh, get much out of that. But once we get east of that from uh, Missouri, southern Iowa, southward to the Gulf of Mexico and all points east, it looks like this system is going to bring quite a bit of precipitation. Um, you know, for this time of year, anything over a half inch is actually really good. And it looks like a lot of these areas should get kind of that uh, sort of rainfall farther south where we have some more thunderstorms. We could have some severe weather later this week across uh, the south. Uh, we could see a little bit more. And, um, you know, it's we talked about how warm it's going to be, but it's still cold enough for snow. And we'll get probably a couple of inches of snow on the backside of this system as well. All right. See some action coming as this week wears on. John, let's take our focus down to South America. We talked to Pedro Deneca here in segment one about that Brazilian crop coming off. He mentioned they need that rain to keep coming for another couple of months. How is it set up across Brazil as you take a look right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, it's it's looking actually really good for Brazil, uh, especially as, as you go from central into northern Brazil, where the, the rainy season's really uh, taking form. If 
as as Pedro noted. Um, we'll we'll continue to see that over the next several weeks as those soybeans fill. And and as he mentioned, it really sets up their safrina or their second season corn crop uh, in pretty good shape uh, in most years. And so far, that looks like that's going to continue. So uh, Brazil's record numbers that that he was talking about are still on track to to kind of be there. Um, as you know, we start uh, to get those harvesters out either later this month or in the beginning of February. Down a little bit farther south, though, as we get into Argentina, that trouble continues. John, this past week, I understand you had highlighted there was a heat wave heading back for Argentina. Did those temps end up materializing? They sure did. And so we've we've seen a lot of uh, kind of the flip side of La Nina there. Uh, down in Argentina, where it typically has its biggest impacts there and, and in far southern Brazil. But, you know, you yeah, like I like you uh, said there, uh, the heat really kind of took form uh, over the weekend. And we've seen a lot of temperatures reaching that triple digit mark across almost all of their growing areas there in Argentina. Not really any space was spared uh, upper 90s at least, but a lot of uh, a lot of those broke the 100 degree mark. And uh, that continues here today until really a, a cold front comes through. It'll knock down temperatures here uh, tomorrow and Wednesday, but it's not bringing a whole lot of showers with it. It's got some, um, and you know they, they're going to need a heck of a lot more than what they're going to get out of this little system. So um, yeah, things just continue to be pretty poor down there in Argentina. That Argentinian growing season, of course, it is such a long country, but John, when does that start to wrap up? Right. I mean, and they they really have kind of two phases of corn planting, at least. Uh, they do one phase kind of in September, October, and the other one in December and January. So they're, they're really getting into their, they're, they're ending their second phase of planting right now. And some of the crop is is kind of maturing and some of the crop is just coming out of the ground. So it's it's uh, it's a really long um, season. And, and, you know, that early planted stuff has had the worst of the conditions, obviously. Um, and you know, there's not a whole lot of soil moisture down there. Some of those areas down there have, are kind of near the record low for soil moisture right now. So even as they're still planting and, and still coming up, uh, it's not coming into in, into good condition. So um, you know, the, the early planted stuff is getting the worst of it, but the later planted stuff isn't having a good time either. All right, tough to find a winner down there in Argentina, folks. We've been talking with meteorologist John Baranek of DTN Weather, and John, thanks for joining us today. Always good to talk to you, Mike. Talk next week. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll check in with Dr. Paul Sundberg at the Swine Health Information Center when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the Monthly Grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. collaboration platform on ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next Monthly Grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Once we take a look at what's going on here in this grain and livestock trade early on, we have fairly mixed activity happening right now with corn, beans, wheat, all trading a couple of cents either side of unchanged. Livestock trade is firm to slightly higher. We see the outside markets, the stock market relatively quiet. Crude oil is up around 2% here as we work into our trading week as well. Cautious optimism spreading really across the markets overnight, supported by ideas that China's reopening could result in an economic boost in the weeks and months ahead, as well as ideas that Friday's monthly jobs report provided the data needed to justify a pivot by the Federal Reserve. We'll have to watch and see if that's the case. Now, as we look at the markets this week on the ag commodities, it's going to be a big week with the January World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates coming up on Thursday. 
Traders are going to be watching those numbers very closely. You could see a bit of positioning and squaring up of positions ahead of that report as well. We're watching global news also, not to mention just the weather in South America, but also the different uh, riots and more going on in Brazil over the weekend. That is something to keep an eye on. We're watching the Black Sea region as well and what the Ukraine government is doing, uh, what it can to subsidize crop production for the coming year where acreage is expected to optimistically be down perhaps another 20% or more. So a lot of things swirling in these markets as we start off the year. But again, overall, fairly mixed activity on Monday in the grains with the livestock trade relatively firm here as we start things off and coming up on that WASDI report Thursday going to be watching to see if USDA lowers Argentina production due to weather problems there however they're expected to hold that Brazil number steady that's a look at the market trade you're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network I'm Jesse Allen you're going to need me you're going to need us All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise, we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Always appreciate you making us a part of your day. And now we're going to turn our focus over to the hog industry. We have seen a lot of volatility in that market. We've seen a lot of challenges for producers here over the past couple of years. And not least of those challenges is swine health. Well, the Swine Health Information Center keeps track of the data that impacts swine herd diseases. And Dr. Paul Sundberg serves as the executive director. He joins us now. Dr. Sundberg, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You know, at Schick, of course, you guys track both diseases domestically here in the U.S. and, of course, those tracking around the world. And I want to start with domestic diseases. Dr. Sunberg, PERS has been a challenge for this hog industry. How's it doing? Is it getting better? Are we getting a handle on it as a disease? Well, nationally, PERS, the level of PERS right now nationally is within the limits of what we would expect. So it's in the normal limits. But uh, there's been a significant increase in the detection of PERS in adult or, or sow farms. And uh, that's following a leveling off of our finishing site. So it's an experience of, of what we've seen in multiple years that the finishing sites tend to break with PERS a month or two before sow sites uh, tend to break with PERS. So it's still out there. We've still got a lot of PERS in the Midwest and Corn Belt states. Uh, even though nationally it is, um, it's within limits. There's pockets in the Midwest and Corn Belt states where we've still got a lot of problems. All right, PERS, such a costly challenge for pork producers. Now, Dr. Sundberg, at Schick, you guys publish the Swine Disease Reporting System reports, and of course you track PERS, but some additional diseases as well. What are some other risks to the domestic swine herd you're tracking? Yeah, some good news is that um, the influenza A, the influenza virus in the pigs, and that detection has um, has seemed to level off. So it looks like maybe our peak that happened in November and December hopefully is over. Um, PED, porcine ep epidemic diarrhea, uh, has a moderate increase in in activity, but really not anything outside of of what would be normal. So there's still that that level that of activity that you'd expect. 
and mycoplasma and, and circovirus are both holding steady. So there's um, some movement in PERS, and you'd expect that for this time of year. But as the other diseases go, they're pretty much within limits and, and are being handled and managed as they usually are. That is good news. The American hog industry staying on top of these disease threats. But Dr. Sundberg, of course, we also have threats circulating around the globe. Luckily, some that aren't on our shores yet. I'm thinking first and foremost about African swine fever. 2022 was a big year for ASF. Can you fill us in on how that spread tracked throughout the year? Yeah, since 2020, um, there have been 45 countries that have reported ASF infections. And so you know, that's, um, that's probably the number one emerging disease, swine disease around the world. Um, there have been a lot of outbreaks in, uh, new outbreaks in Italy, Nepal, Thailand, North Macedonia, Czech Republic, and there's been outbreaks in new zones in Germany and the Philippines. So uh, ASF still moving around the world. It's still active and it's still going. Um, there's It's going in Eastern Europe where we've, uh, and had a, a delegation from the National Pork Board that have done uh, a visit there to try to learn lessons in those countries so we can be better prepared here to prevent or to respond. And then you have it on the island of Hispaniola and the, and the Dominican Republic and Haiti there. And that looks like it's going to be a long-term issue on that island. Dr. Sundberg, I remember last year there was talk about Vietnamese uh, scientists coming up with a vaccine for African swine fever. Did that get rolled out? Have we seen any reports of efficacy? It is. Uh, it is being still being field tested in Vietnam. It, uh, the reports of efficacy and of safety are good. It looks effective. It looks very safe. So that's very promising. But there are limitations with that vaccine. It can be produced only in very limited quantities, so it most probably won't be available to others around the world other than in that specific area. And then there are issues about um, being able to differentiate a vaccinated pig from a pig that's had the infection, uh, and that doesn't happen with that vaccine. So there's still a lot of activity. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to get us a, an effective, safe vaccine for ASF that's available around the world. All right. I'm curious, of course, folks, we're talking with Dr. Paul Sundberg, Executive Director of the Swine Health Information Center. And Dr. Sundberg, you published your January Swine Disease Global Surveillance Report. And in there were all sorts of fascinating facts and statistics about swine disease around the world. And one of the things you highlighted was a chart showing the incidence of outbreaks or the frequency of outbreaks per region. And it really struck me with the, the sheer number of ASF outbreaks in Europe versus Asia, Africa, and of course the Americas. And I'm wondering, is that because ASF is a bigger threat in Europe or are they better about tracking and recording ASF outbreaks? Well, it's probably a little bit of both, Mike. Um, they are good at tracking outbreaks, but like I said, ASF has been moving around in Eastern Europe and in all of Europe with Italy and, and the Czech Republic. So it, it's kind of a combination of both. ASF moves in, in feral pigs, in uh, wild boar, and there's a lot of those in Eastern Europe. So local movement is probably caused by a wild boar movement. But then they, it jumps from one area of the country to another, and we saw that in Germany, from eastern Germany to western Germany. That's most probably because people are moving it. And, and even though it's safe for people as a pork product, um, anytime you get a sandwich that has ASF in it that um, comes from a pig and another pig can uh, contact and eat that sandwich, they'll get it as well. So it can jump uh, as far as that sandwich is transported, or it can move locally, probably with um, with wild boar. And you mentioned that it is in the Western Hemisphere. We've got it in the Dominican Republic, the island of Hispaniola. And I remember this fall, there was a mystery disease reported in Ecuador. There was concern that maybe it was African swine fever. Dr. Sundberg, did they ever get to the bottom of what that disease was in Ecuador? Yeah, we don't have a report of what that disease was, and the good news is we don't we know what it wasn't, and it wasn't ASF, it wasn't African swine fever, it wasn't classical swine fever. The conjecture is most probably that it was a hot PERS outbreak, 
but we don't have a confirmation of what that was. We know that for the Western Hemisphere, ASF is still only, uh, as, as far as we have today, ASF is still only on Hispaniola and the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and that's going to be a long-term issue. The, um, the virus in the Dominican Republic looks like it's attenuating or it's getting less virulent, and that means that it's going to be easier for that virus to hide, if you want to use that term, in pigs in, in the Dominican Republic. It's going to be harder to find it, and that means it's going to be a long-term issue in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti. All right. Hopefully the researchers will continue that work fighting ASF here close to our shores. But in the meantime, Dr. Sunberg, we're also grappling with other diseases, foot and mouth disease in Southeast Asia and Australia, Indonesia. Is that spread ongoing? Well, uh, there was a big outbreak of FMD in Indonesia in the uh, late 2022. Um, Australia was real concerned about that because of the proximity of that country to Australia and the opportunity for it to jump over into Australia. There's a big vaccine effort in, in Indonesia and a big, big control effort. And so I think that's been stamped down just a bit. Um, and it's uh, more under control as the reports we have. However, FMD, it, just like FMD is, it continues to work around the world at a low level, not like the ASF outbreaks, but at a low level, but pretty constant. All right. So it is there. You know, I mentioned Australia got me thinking about Japanese encephalitis virus. The Australians were concerned about that earlier in the year. Is that risk still out there? Yeah, that risk is very much still out there. Um, reports from Australia is that they've had a lot of rain and a lot of water in this spring now. They're in December, January is their spring season. And uh, they've had a lot of rainfall there. So they're doing a lot of of communications, both from government and producers, um, public health, animal health, about the risk of encephalitis moving in um, Australia and the vaccine that happens in people as well as in horses there. We don't have one for pigs that's approved for pigs yet, but they're working on that. Um, they're still monitoring that right now. We're not seeing the outbreak of JEV in Australia that we did in January of 2022. But um, that's cautiously optimistic because the season's still young and there's still a lot of opportunity for that to happen in Australia. And we're trying to make sure we're closing every window we can so we don't import it here into North America. Well, that's the thing because it's mosquito-borne. Isn't that the risk? Yeah, that's right. It's just like West Nile virus that we have here in, in the U.S. It's transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, transmitted both to animals as well as to people. So there's a risk all around there, and we've got to make sure that we do everything we can to uh, keep that out of our country. Indeed we do. Those risks are global, folks. Keep up to date on what risks are impacting swine health. You can learn from the Swine Health Information Center on their website at swinehealth.org. We've been talking with Executive Director Dr. Paul Sundberg. And Dr. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. And folks, stay with us. We'll be back with more AOA after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. 
For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member, Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. Collaboration Platform on Ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag we attended the european union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum you know everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in europe my opinion is this is usda's way of having a conversation having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the eu and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next Monthly Grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Appreciate you joining us today. And this week is a busy week for agriculture. America's largest ag association is having its annual meeting in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I'm talking about the American Farm Bureau Federation. They've all gathered down there in Puerto Rico this week to discuss issues that matter to agriculture. And to start the week, Secretary Vilsack will be presenting to that group later on today. But there have already been some important announcements coming out of the meeting down there in Puerto Rico. Noticeably, there was a memorandum of understanding struck between John Deere and the American Farm Bureau Federation. And this centers around the right to repair, the idea that if you buy a piece of equipment or something, you then are also buying the right to modify and to fix that piece of equipment. And farm groups have been very active pushing large manufacturers like John Deere, in the case of agriculture, CNH, other ag manufacturers, in addition to tech companies. There, there's a large society-wide push to allow right to repair on products like an Apple iPhone, for example. And manufacturers have been pushing back. We've spoken on this program with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers about some of the concerns their members have about allowing folks to repair and work on their own equipment. So this back and forth has been brewing for some time. A number of states have passed right to repair legislation. A number of other states have talked about it. So Farm Bureau and John Deere have gotten together and they have published this MOU. And the idea is it's sort of a legal document that specifies how these two sides are going to behave. And the key is there's a request on both sides. So what American Farm Bureau Federation got from John Deere was a promise that farmers will be able to repair their own equipment. Now, Zippy Duval said in this announcement, uh, head of the American Farm Bureau, he said, quote, this one will enable you and your independent mechanics to identify and fix problems. You will have access to the diagnostic tools and information you need, and you will get it at a fair and reasonable price. Now, the folks from John Deere have said the company is looking forward to working with American Farm Bureau and, quote, our customers in the months and years ahead to ensure farmers continue to have the tools and resources to diagnose, maintain, and repair their equipment. Now, so John Deere has promised to provide uh, equipment owners and independent technicians with the, the tools they would need to diagnose and repair electronic is issues in their machinery. And then they ask that American Farm Bureau and their state affiliates work together to not push for increased legislation at the state level defining right to repair. It's a very big issue. It's, of course, this MOU is just between John Deere and American Farm Bureau, so none of the other ag manufacturers are bound by it, but it likely will become a template for how this right to repair issue could be negotiated going forward. Hopefully we will be having a conversation with folks from the American Farm Bureau Federation about this issue as more details become available. We've also got some issues happening in Washington, D.C. Of course, we like to keep track of what uh, regulators and legislators are up to in D.C. And I was a little surprised to get this piece of news in my email yesterday. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, the U.S. CPSC, has announced that they are looking to regulate gas stoves. Specifically, they say they may be looking at a ban on gas stoves. The concern is that gas stoves allegedly emit harmful indoor air pollutants, and they're saying this could cause health and respiratory problems could lead to childhood asthma. Richard Trumka Jr. is an agency commissioner at the U.S. Product Safety Commission, and he said, quote, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe should be banned, end quote. So we will see how seriously DC takes a look at those gas stoves throughout the country. But if you're looking for one, might be worth buying one sooner rather than later. Looking at some of the other issues that are percolating in the world of agriculture today, we've got news out of Ukraine. Uh, their exports have been announced, and so far the Ukrainian agriculture industry has been able to move 23.6 million metric tons of grain so far in the 2022-2023 marketing season. Now that's pretty substantial considering there is an active war happening in Ukraine and many of their ports have been shut down. That is, however, 10 million metric tons below the previous year. And remember, going back to this time of year in 2022 would be pre-invasion. So we are down about 10 million metric tons from where Ukraine was 
pre-war. They did note that uh, that included 8.6 million metric tons of wheat, 13.3 million metric tons of corn, and about 1.7 million metric tons of barley. And that corn sale actually drew some headlines this past weekend as well. There was a bulk carrier moving corn from Ukraine over to China, and it got stuck in the Suez Canal. A lot of the Transport media flashed back to 2020 when that very large container ship Ever Given got lodged sideways across the canal. It took several days to get that ship moved. This was not nearly that big of a deal. The ship had some mechanical issues about 23 miles into the canal, lost an engine, ran aground on the uh, side, but they did end up getting it pulled off and getting it moved. In other news here in the United States, we've got some additional labor issues in agriculture. There have been two strikes ongoing at Case uh, CNH industrial facilities, one in Wisconsin and one in Burlington, Iowa. These strikes have been ongoing. Negotiations have been back and forth. And just prior to Christmas, CNH, CNH issued a new proposal to the workers, including wage increases of 25 to 38 percent. That's according to CNH. However, union members voted and they voted to reject both proposals or reject the proposal at both plants, I say. And uh, the UAW, United Auto Workers, represents about a thousand workers at both plants. And uh, they had warned going into this vote that a rejection of the most recent offer was going to be likely. Uh, so I don't think anybody is too surprised. Case New Holland did say this offer was their last, best, and final. And they are currently encouraging employees to reconsider their position in another vote. As of now, that strike will continue in both Racine and in Burlington. Folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We'll have a conversation with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at Stonex, about what he's expecting to see on Thursday's USDA report. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. In farming, you know being early means you're right on time. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can protect your investment and give your farm an advantage all season long. Find the tools and resources you need to spray early and guarantee your weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash spray early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved.